1: on the 6.30 Ched Afternoon News. Hope you're having a great day. I'm going to get to more of those songs. We were just talking about Glen Campbell and him passing away and those songs that take you back in a place. Lots of folks um, texting in their thoughts. One of our favourite guests on this show is joining us once again. Um, A two-week celebration of Canada's 150th birthday is underway in St. Albert. It's called... No, 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 no. Sherwood Park. Sherwood Park. (laughs) Sherwood Park. Ah... (laughs) Don't, don't send them the wrong direction you know I always <laughs> do that because festival place right uh, yeah. I always do that I Sherwood get that the Park sorry Ted that's okay Sherwood Park it's at festival place though uh, is it Chautauqua? Is that how you say yeah, it? Yeah. It's uh, called Chautauqua 150. It's actually the name of a town in
0: upstate New York, okay. Chautauqua.
1: And so this this was a popular way of sharing information, entertaining, teaching in the late yeah. 1800s. So tell, what does that mean? Well,
0: one of the things that emerged in the late 19th century, remember we're talking about industrialized mm-hmm. Britain and industrialized Canada and the United States, as smaller centers shrank because farm populations left to go to the big cities. The farm communities were left very much out in the cold for the arts, Mm -hmm. culture, language, uh, dissertations, lectures, music, ballet, theater, book readings. Mm -hmm. And in Chautauqua, New York in the 1880s, I think, they decided to bring culture to Chautauqua. Hmm. Take it from New York and Chicago and bring lecturers and artists to perform for a small community who wouldn't have, who were starved for culture. The idea caught on Mm -hmm. and chautauquas took place all over the world and it lives to this day as a way of bringing culture in a kind of an informal under the big top relaxed Mm -hmm. friendly way it's not you must learn this (laughs) it's here's a piece of life that you might not know about or a story or culture that you're Mm -hmm. not necessarily acquainted with and Mm -hmm. it's not like hey you country bumpkins learn it's a it's about bringing the the artistic world to uh, those who wouldn't have it.
1: So if you're going, oh, man, that name Ted Barris is very familiar right <laughs> now. That voice is very familiar. It's because he's been on this show a number of times. Um, author, uh, radio, TV personality, considered... M- Couldn't keep a steady
0: job, so I tried yeah, them all. No,
1: that's not true. <laughs> uh, military historian and really the keeper of almost Canada's military history anymore. Well, thank uh, you. And, you're speaking this week at the Chautauqua. Thursday night, 7.30. Thursday night, and you've written, I don't know how many, 20 books now?
0: Um, working on 19, 20, and 21 okay. at the moment, three of them at the same time. <laughs>
1: <laughs> but you're speaking, you're going back to one of your books from 2009 called Breaking the Silence, Veterans Untold Soldiers from the Great War to Afghanistan. Why did you pick this one?
0: To do at Chautauqua? Mm-hmm. Because it's the thing that nobody talks about in Canada and everybody needs to talk about in Canada. And that is how these wartime experiences affect soldiers. Uh, Navy uh, ensigns right through to um, generals Mm -hmm. and back down to ground crew and air force. I mean, everyone who's gone through a wartime experience has changed. Mm -hmm. And I've had the honor, I've had uh, the extraordinary... um, Uh, pleasure to a certain extent and uh, the gift of having an opportunity to meet probably 6,000, maybe 6,500 veterans over the years and and sat down and interviewed them or listened to Mm -hmm. them. Mm -hmm. And their stories, uh, yes, are harrowing and they're blood-curdling, but they're also moving because once an interviewee, as you know from Mm -hmm. sitting in that chair, once an interviewee begins to trust you, that woman or man begins to open up Mm -hmm. and say things they've never said before. Mm -hmm. So that's what that book is about. But I'm going to take some moments that will be, I think, classic about the way veterans sometimes defend their emotions, Mm -hmm. somehow deflect our curiosity and sometimes hide yeah. the truth. Yeah,
1: Ted. I in the past, you know, we've talked pretty much very specific, you know, about Vimy, about Juno Beach. Um, this time, I want to get into a little bit more about you and how you ended up at, sure. at this point, and then we'll get into some of these stories in this book but we 've talked in the past a little bit about your your dad 's military um, involvement, but again, kept it quiet didn 't yeah. know anything. I was shocked I was surprised to read at the very start of this book that you actually in fact grew up in a in a home that is it fair to say was anti military
0: well, it certainly was pacifist yes um, we didn't we argued a lot, mm-hmm. but it was all verbally mm-hmm. uh, There was never a gun in our house. Um, My father wouldn't have it. Mm -hmm. Um, He was a medic in the Second World War. Uh, And Dad and I were very close. We were both writers. I learned so much from him. God, I'm going to start choking up here in a second. Um, But uh, when I was about 14... I was in an accident, and I was laid up at home in bed, and Dad was a freelance writer at that time, so he was at home a lot, and I was really feeling sorry for myself lying in bed there, oh, woe is me, and Dad would come in and humor me with all the great stories that he always had to tell, and one day, I popped the big question. I said, Dad, what did you do in the war? Because I didn't know at Mm -hmm. 14, and he told me that he'd been a medic, and he was a medic in the American army. And I didn't know much about the specifics, but of course, he being the funny guy, he was always a, a great character for telling stories. He told me about the funny things that happened as a medic. He, they hated the cook, so they sabotaged his food. Um, every day during training, he was in uh, Camp Phillips in Kansas and somewhere in Mississippi, the worst places in the United States as far as he was concerned. But between breakfast when he was training and lunch, uh, they would be given a peanut butter sandwich and a bologna sandwich. And he went looking from breakfast to lunch for somebody who hated peanut <laughs> peanut butter as much as he hated bologna, so they could get two peanut butter sandwiches. He told me stories like that. He told me how they stole a Jeep in Czechoslovakia after the war and snuck Mm -hmm. into Prague. He told me about how when he was coming home, they went to Marseille and he went through the entire war in spite of where he was, without a scratch. And on the last day in France, he tripped on the tailgate getting from the truck to the ship, and he cracked his skull on the concrete and scraped his arm, and he was in a sling and had Mm -hmm. a a, a patch over his head. And when the wounded were unloaded in New York from the Liberty ship, they came off first. So there was my dad (laughs) with a sling and a a white patch over his, his head because he'd tripped out of the tailgate coming <laughs> home. Those are the stories he told yeah. me. At the end of that conversation when I was 14, I said, did, did you get any recognition? And he went back, came back to me and he gave me this ribbon with a medal on it. Mm-hmm. Didn't say a word, gave it to me and I tucked it away and forgot about it. Years went by, we grew closer because we were both professional writers. He got sick toward the ends of his life in, in the sense that he had smoked too much and the strokes cut up with him and killed him eventually. But before he died, the last stroke took away his most precious of faculties, his memory and his mm-hmm. speech. Mm-hmm. And in those last months, my mom called me. She said, you've got to come down and see something. I went to the apartment and it opened up a folder. And in the folder was a citation. And I remembered the medal. Mm -hmm. I looked at the citation. I didn't even know my dad was a sergeant, which meant that he was in charge of other medics. And the citation said that somewhere around February 24th, 25th, 1945, during the Battle of the Bulge, which was the Americans' Mm -hmm. worst, bloodiest encounter with the Germans, Dad went into a mined, booby trapped area and brought out four or five medics and stretcher-bearers all by himself to safety. And somebody saw it and he was given this citation and he was given the bronze star. Huge. He never told me. And that sparked my curiosity as I began to piece that story and let it settle in my brain and realized that there was a military side to our family after all. And then I ran into a man that we'll talk about maybe in a few yes. minutes who kindled that flame and drew me into this work.
1: Yeah, because it it took some time, and I think during university time you were demonstrating.
0: Oh, yeah, you know, I was part of the SDS, the Students for Democratic Society, yeah. which was illegal in Canada. Yeah. I was a member, a card-carrying member. <laughs> they could have thrown me out of the country.
1: Badass, Ted <laughs> Barris. <laughs> um, okay, well, let's take a break here okay. because when we come back... I. I I wanna to talk to you about how that changed. I wanna to talk to you about Charlie Fox, um, whose story is in this book, who helped break the silence, one of the stories that has been shared. If you have a story you can share with us as well at 6.30, 6.30. Uh, stay with us, Ted Barris in studio for the next hour. Author, uh, military historian, Ted Barris, joining in, uh, joining us in studio this afternoon. Breaking the Silence is uh, one of his books that we're talking about today. It's Veterans Untold uh, Stories from the Great War to Afghanistan. And um, when I was learning about your background, your history, and how it, how it came together, because we all have something um, when we become passionate about it. There was something that triggered, something that flipped a switch, you know, and all of a sudden, an interest begins. So you started and a little bit about your dad, but then you met a fellow by the name of Charlie Fox. And wow, this man is something else. How'd that happen? How'd that happen? And how did that turn you on to this?
0: Well, with all the pacifism that was inherent in my relationship with my dad mm-hmm. and our family, um, I was a little bit suspicious of things military. Uh, and as you pointed out, I was very anti-war in mm-hmm. Vietnam. It was a, it was a phase, and, and I was passionate. But I began to realize that these, these were people, not just machines. Mm-hmm. And Charlie helped me through that. I went down to a little place in southwestern Ontario called um, Tilsonburg. And at Tilsonburg, there were a bunch of these airplanes that Mm -hmm. these old guys were tinkering with and rebuilding so that they were just like new, aircraft called Harvards. Now, Mm -hmm. Harvards were big, fat, (laughs) kind of uh, training aircraft, but they were very powerful and they were service aircraft that that men who'd learned how to solo on uh, Fleet Mm Finch's biplanes much slower, less uh, dangerous, would move to Harvards. Anyway, these guys were tinkering with them to remember the British Commonwealth Air Training Plan which was a massive plan. That's a whole other book that I've done, <laughs> but we won't go there. The reality was that it was a story that was untold. And one of the doorways into that story was this fellow, Charlie Fox, whom I met at Tilsonburg. And he was making change for people who were buying hamburgers and hot dogs <laughs> at the fly day mm-hmm. at the at the Tilsonburg uh, uh, club. And I went down to do a little piece for CBC, just maybe a three, four minute or, you know, talk to a couple of people, talk to a couple of vets, put it all together and Mm-hmm. You know, Bob's your uncle, that's it. Well, Charlie was captivating, and I realized there was something here. And the more he realized I was interested, the more he sensed that I was a good person to talk mm-hmm. to to maybe make this bigger than just a four- or four, five-minute piece. He convinced me to write a book, and he kind of shepherded me not only into the story of the British Commonwealth Air Training Plan, but also into the lives of veterans. And he came, when my dad died, Charlie came to the funeral, and unannounced... And when I hugged him, it was as if he had become my father. Mm-hmm. He took over that role of mentoring me, pushing me, inspiring me. And his story, which is a long one, and I'm going to tell Thursday night, is an extraordinary one, too. I, I can go into it, if, a little bit of it. but
1: If we have a nutshell. But he was Air Force. He was. Yeah.
0: So, But he started as an, as a, an instructor in the BCATP. When he finally got his chance to go overseas... He lands in France in 1944. His first op was with the most decorated fighter pilot of the Canadian Air Force, Buzz Burling. He was tail end Charlie. And he flew operations on D-Day over Juneau Beach while his brother, Ted, was going in with the artillery. He flew operations against the V-1s, the V-2s, uh, Market Garden, all the way to just before V-E Day. And they told him within a few days of May the 8th, 45, Charlie, that's it, you're finished. You're going to go to Buckingham Palace. You've got a DFC in bar. They're going to present it to you. And he said, no, he said, if you don't want me to fly, I'm going home. <laughs> so he went back to Guelph, Ontario, yep. to selling shoes. To sell shoes. And there he put his career in the Air Force in the closet. till I came along, and I'm going through his flight log, and I see things in there that are extraordinary. Not just the instruction, but I see July the 17th, 1944, and there's a little red tick in the box next to it. And I said, Charlie, what's that? He wouldn't tell me until I did several interviews. And he finally revealed that on that day, July the seventh. 1944, he was up stooging around looking for trouble. By now the Allies are in France. They have a toehold, so their Air Force bases, the tactical Air Force Mm -hmm. is now in France. So he's flying from those bases looking for trouble. And he sees this staff car, German staff car, screaming along a road. Figures this guy's important, comes down out of the clouds, strafes him, drives him off the road, goes back to his base. He lands and the radios are buzzing. Why? Because a Brit... A South African and an American who've been in the air are all claiming they've just driven the desert fox <laughs> out of the war. Erwin Rommel was mm-hmm. in that staff car. Wow. Charlie never said a thing. Took the red pen, marked a check in the box, and didn't say a word until we poked him and poked him years later to reveal that he was the guy who did it.
1: Ted, what, what is it about our, our men and women, our, our, our veterans, uh, when, they, when they came back from World War I, World War II, Korea, from their peacekeeping missions, from Afghanistan, that keep it inside. Um, was that just what they thought that they had to do, were supposed to do, that they were supposed to remain tough, not show emotion? Part of it. Yeah.
0: Um, we're not a flag-waving nation. Mm-hmm. We don't brag, least of all over the bodies of our dead mm-hmm. comrades. Um, That's not to say that British and American soldiers who do are doing that, but that's not our nature. Um, There's also a a greater sense among Canadian vets, I've sensed, where if they're seen in front of their families to break down over these stories, they're seen to be less, Mm -hmm. to be more vulnerable, less manly. Um, a lot of vets have only started to speak in the last 15 or so years because they sensed that the story was not written correctly and it needed to be set straight. That's why I've had the good fortune to get some of them to talk. Some of the, I think of the thousands of veterans, only one refused to allow me to take notes and record it. But everybody else trusted me enough to say, yes, you have my story. And they knew that when I left their home or their mm. apartment or wherever we met, with the exception of Charlie, because he and I always got together to kind of go back over things. Most of the vets, I would never see again. And they sense that it's done. done I've told my story. I've broken down maybe in front of this stranger, not in front of my son or my daughter or my wife. um, And I can move on having done that. It's out of my life. It's like closure, you know?
1: 6,000 to 6,500 vets you've, you've interviewed over the years. Some of them, um, it's been you know, one, an interview and you've not seen them again. Others you've developed very, very close friendships with. When you lose one of them, it must be like losing a, a, a part of you at times.
0: It's like losing my dad again yeah. and again and again. As recently as last month, I did a eulogy. I did a eulogy at my uncle's mm-hmm. funeral because none of my family knew his military story like I did.
1: Mm-hmm.
0: I've done that to two of my uncles. And it's like dying with them and, and, and losing a father again and again and again because the family say, please, Ted, tell Mm -hmm. dad's story or mom's Mm -hmm. because they're women too Mm -hmm. because we didn't know what his or her military story was experience was you do and it's a piece of his life or her life and so i stand in front of family and friends and loved ones and say here's what this man did Here's how she served. Here's why we should remember what they did, not just as service people who did their tour, mm-hmm. but of Canadians who s- stood for something.
1: Being a keeper of military history, it's, and it's not just... Mil- it is Canadian military history, but you also have become the keeper of a lot of family history. and And that's... That's a huge honor, and that's, I think at times, must be a huge pressure as well. I, I've, been, I've been handed, my dad was a keeper of the Nye family history, and that has recently been transferred to me, whether it's Good. the oldest documents, whether it's the old pictures, whether it's making sure I knew who everybody is, and all of these pictures, and all of that. But really, strangers' family history...
0: They're they're um, they're ghosts in some ways because and they haunt you if you don't tell them right. Mm-hmm. Um, you've got a news break to go to here in a second. I day. do. Yes. Okay. Um, when, I, when we come back, why don't we I tell you a little bit about uh, a chapter in the book called Reunion of Two, in which I'll tell you the story of how I met somebody, okay. quite by accident, who turned on a dime my understanding of what happened on June the 6th, 1944 D-Day.
1: Perfect. Ted Barris joining us in studio this afternoon. We're talking about his book, Breaking the Silence, Veterans Untold Stories from the Great War to Afghanistan, speaking at Festival Place in Sherwood Park on Thursday evening at 7.30. Tickets are still available and if you were at his Vimy uh, presentation a few months back, you'll know how wonderful that is. You're not going to want to miss this. More with Ted Barris right after this. Ted Barris joining us in studio this afternoon. He is speaking Thursday night at Festival Place. It is called uh, Chautauqua 150. And so it's two weeks of uh, events out at Festival Place, um, marking Canada's 150th. And Ted Barris, of course, military historian, author, now working on books number 19, 20, and 21. (laughs) But we've gone back a little bit to 2009, talking about um, his book Breaking the Silence. And you know really this this wonderful opportunity that you've had over the years to talk with veterans and get them to share their stories and in this book being able to compile them um, one by one moving them all together And know we had talked about um, about charlie fox um, and you wanted to tell me another story um, about something coming together. Well, it, it, thank you for pointing out
0: that it was an opportunity because mm-hmm. it really was. I mean, every time I meet these people, it's a gift to me. And I, and I don't use the word I in mm-hmm. text very often, but I did throughout this because And the first draft, I wasn't in it. And the publisher, the editor said to me, uh, Patrick Crean, a wonderful editor, he said, this great book, Ted, but there's something missing, huge missing, Mm -hmm. elephant in the room. You've got to be in this book. So I went back and and did that. (laughs) So I'm going to tell you about a story. Um, You and I both were in 2003 (laughs) at the opening of the uh, Juno Beach Center.
1: And can I just say, I didn't know you were there and I read (laughs) it in the book and your memories were some of my memories on on the faces of the veterans when, when they were piped out at the end of the service, but I was like, wow, we were there. We, Our paths have crossed.
0: <laughs> they have, either physically or spiritually. <laughs> yeah. Anyway, so when I was writing my book, Juno, which came out in 2003-04, mm-hmm. just on the eve of the 60th anniversary of D-Day, Um, I was plowing along because then I was teaching full-time. I've now retired from Centennial College in Toronto. But at the time, I had about 16 weeks within which to write the manuscript. And I'm powering along like crazy through the summer, writing, Mm -hmm. writing, writing. writing. And about July somewhere, uh, I live in a little town called Oxbridge, and I had to go down to the... Bank of Commerce to pay my visa bill. <laughs> and I just, oh, hey, I better, hey, this yeah. is the date I, tomorrow it's due kind of thing. So I walked down to the bank and I went in the door and you know how you line up in a bank in a single line and you wait for a teller to be mm-hmm. available. So the queuing and so on. So I'm standing on line and in front, on the front of the line is a guy who turns around recognizes me and a man, an older man between us and I'm third and he says oh hi Ted how are you I said fine guy in the front and he said what are you doing I said oh I'm working on a book about D-Day the next year's the 60th anniversary he said hey oh hey that's a great idea teller's available he goes the older gentleman turns around I'm two feet from his <laughs> face and he says I was there mm. I said you're a veteran he said yeah I was there on Juno Beach uh and I said can you wait while I pay my visa (laughs) bill? I'd like to talk to you for a second, quite literally. His name was Fred Bernard. Mm. And he admitted to me in that moment that he'd never told his story. And he lived three blocks from me. And the Saturday morning following our encounter in the bank, he invited me to his rec room in his basement. And he brought out a cigar box in which were photographs and papers. And he told me his story. And very quickly, he was a member of the Queen's Own. They went in very early on the D-Day in the first wave. And in those days, unlike in the American Army, where they tried to keep relatives separate and distant in the military, in the Canadian Army, you were allowed to acquire a relative. You could go in with your father or your brother. And indeed... um, Fred Bernard acquired into the Queen's own, into not just the regiment, not just into the company, but into the very same section as he was Donald, his younger brother. Mm-hmm. And so Fred begins to tell me, going in on the landing craft night, it's about 10 to 8, the door goes down, you can see the bullets dashing off the top of the water, and he yells to his brother, Don, give him hell. They jump into the water, they're going to the beach, and Fred sees ahead of him, against uh, the, the ocean wall, one of his mates, and he makes a beeline toward him because he knows that's the first step to safety. And he stumbles in the water and he looks down and he sees his brother, mm-hmm. Donald with a wound right in the center of his chest, one bullet. He didn't even get to the shore. And Fred's not allowed to stop because the objective that day was to get as far inland as possible. And Fred broke down in telling me the story. I broke down Mm -hmm. in telling the story. And we have been fast friends since. He's still alive mm. in his 90s, doesn't go out much, doesn't even go to Legion much. Mm. But he gave me the greatest gift of that of that book, uh, Juno, because he could take me right into the, the right angst there. of that moment.
1: How has the two minutes of Remembrance Day, those two minutes of silence changed for, for you? over the years. You talk at the beginning of the book about not knowing what you were supposed to think or feel or remember. How has that changed for you? Well, it's changed
0: through my students because when I went to Centennial College in 1999 and started teaching, it was in the fall, and I said to my colleague, hey guys, what are we doing for Remembrance Day? Because I knew it was coming. Mm -hmm. And they said, well, I'm embarrassed to say we just take a couple of minutes of silence in the middle of the, you know, at 11 o'clock and that's it. And I said, that's going (laughs) to (laughs) change. And so the next year, in 2000, I created a ceremony and we had a bugler there and we had a color guard from the local legion that I'd invited. And we did all of the regular things, pausing at 11 o'clock and so on. But what made the event for me was the chance to bring in veterans I knew who trusted me Mm -hmm. to stand in front of students from Canada, from Somalia, from China, from Mm Bosnia, I mean, all over the world, young men and women in their late teens, early 20s, who knew nothing about what Remembrance Day was or what Canadian service in foreign wars was about. And these veterans standing there in the flesh for the first time told them, as I interviewed them in front of this assembly, what they had done. And you could hear a pin drop in the room. And I realized that's Remembrance Day. That's the importance of it. The silence is important, but it's the speaking I want. It's the connecting, the communicating, so that we don't forget. That's what Remembrance is about.
1: Sharing the stories. Yeah. Yeah, and I've said this many times on this show, standing outside of the Canadian War Cemetery, Benny surmer so just down from Juneau Beach, and I was talking to a veteran from the Italian campaign, from Ortona, and his words to me were, we'll never have a future if we don't remember the past. Yeah. And that is what I have written in every book at every Canadian War Cemetery across Normandy, Belgium, wherever I've been. His words, and and. And that is what is so very important: is sharing those stories. And it's why on Remembrance Day, on this show or the day before, um, we talk and we get our listeners to to tell their stories and who they are remembering and who they are honoring. Because if you don't want those stories to die, you you, you need to 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 share and know the names. You, so very important. So yeah. very important. Uh, Ted Barris joining us in studio this afternoon. we we'll take a break uh, here. Now, when we think of veterans, I think for a lot of folks, you think of the 80-, the 90-year-old man, um, you know, uh, reflecting back on, on World War II or Korea. But we know that um, veteran has changed quite a bit, uh, especially uh, over the past uh, 17 years. So... One of the stories in this book deals with Afghanistan. I want to go there. Okay. Right after this. At 345, Ted Barris in studio. And I just want to, again, give a a heads up here. We're going to move into Afghanistan. And I know that we do have a number of uh, listeners who were in Afghanistan, who served in Afghanistan. So... If there's triggers, I just want you to to have a, a heads up on this right now. But one of the veterans that you did talk uh, to in this book, and it was about Afghanistan, and it was dealing with April 17th, 2002, uh, was uh, the friendly fire accident, which became the first Canadian casualties since the Korean War. Right. Um, you talked with um, Corporal Brian Decare and he wasn't too willing or didn't sound really up to it at at the time. His
0: story really uh, changed me in in so many ways, and it wasn't until some time later that I think I pieced it together to realize why. For veterans of the Second World War, the Korean War, even some peacekeeping, peacemaking Mm -hmm. operations, they've had time to digest, to kind of work out a script in their heads about what they saw and felt and experienced. The men and women from Afghanistan haven't had that time, and Brian hadn't had the time to kind of organize his thoughts and, in a way, protect himself. By the same token, when I invited him to my kitchen Mm -hmm. and we sat and I threw everybody out of the house, I said, tonight I'm sitting with this man and it's just us, so everybody go away. And he looked like a deer in the headlights when he came to the door, and I said, Brian, I'm not here to get you. I said, "I I want to listen more mm. than talk. And so he was quite comfortable for the first few minutes because he brought out sheets of paper mm-hmm. with handwriting on them, and he laid them out on the kitchen table. There were about six or eight of them. And I realized what he'd done was he'd written out longhand answers to the questions he figured I was gonna ask him. <laughs> yeah. And I said, that's fine, I wanna know those details too. Um, but my job became finding a question for which there wasn't an answer mm-hmm. on the paper in front of him. And I finally found it. I'm going to tell this on Thursday night. I'm not going to tell you exactly <laughs> what the question was, but I did find it. And I'll, and I'll share with the audience. It was quite moving and quite simple, the simplest of things I asked him. And he looked in space, realizing he didn't have the answer written down, and he sort of went with it he kind of ad-libbed and that was the door that opened to the real the reality of the experience of the friendly fire incident and the four guys he lost there and the others he was wounded himself Mm -hmm. he took shrapnel through his hand and into his face and so he was among the walking wounded but he shared with me in sort of stilted uh, stumbling because it was still fresh and raw um, account of his experience. And it was so real for me. It was, I could touch it. I could, and I, and I never stopped thanking him. He went, he survived that experience and his tour of duty. And, and he, he was somewhere else deployed before he left the military and became a SARTEC, mm-hmm. a search and rescue technician yeah. for which he was awarded, um, a, a meritorious, uh, courage award, I think up in the Arctic. <clears throat> Great career, but I was always so moved by the fact that he was so vulnerable and on the verge of falling apart in that experience.
1: Difference between the older veterans to the younger veterans, and the fact, as you say, that our older veterans have maybe had some time to process their thoughts a little. Good word, b- process, process it. the thoughts. Yeah. But in the end, I mean, I think. It it sounds like it doesn't matter if they're 80 years old or if they're 28 years old, is that when you get them back in that moment, they are back in that moment. It
0: hurts. By coincidence, the morning of the friendly fire incident, they did a simulation with a medevac Mm -hmm. chopper. Mm -hmm. And one of the guys took pictures of what was going on inside the chopper. And later that day, when Brian looked at the pictures and saw that the empty seats were now for the four guys. That's when he lost it. He fell apart because those were his friends. Those were guys he'd trained with and
1: gone, had been deployed with and knew intimate things about, and they died right in front of him. And I know that there's... Um, I'm trying to find a, a message that I received not too long ago about that night from someone who was there uh, as well. Here it is. Um And so Mark Leger, Sergeant uh, Leger, died that night, and of course the boys were from the 3rd Battalion, based here at uh, Edmonton. And, And this person had contacted me and said, I did know Mark. I was in Afghanistan with Mark when he died on April 18th, 17th, depending on where you were in the time change. In a weird twist of fate, I was scheduled to go to the range that night. Mark was not scheduled to go. At the last minute, my boss pulled me and we had a minor argument about the subject and Mark overheard part of the argument. Mark volunteered to go in my place. We were the same rank at the time. I told Mark that he didn't have to do that, but he was emphatic that he wanted to go. I thanked him, shook his hand in appreciation, and I told him when we got to Dubai for our leave the first beers would be on me. He hugged me and I went back to work and that was the last time I saw him. Wow. When I found out he was gone, along with Ainsworth, Ricky and Nathan, I was crushed. It was a tough ordeal to go through. Hmm. But again, you know, when when you start to to touch and develop relationships with different folks, they start to share a lot more. And, you know, I, I know a number of the other guys who were there that night and and publicly, I don't think many of them have have spoken about it. So no. to read... Uh, Corporal Decaire's uh, version of what happened that night, and and me having a tie to um, one of the families, you know, well, Sergeant Leger's uh, family, it was really hard to read on on this side, but yep. it was it was very real. Um, I think for me and for uh, many my age of people who've been around here in the past 20 years, because this is what we know of war was Afghanistan, or in in recent memory, that's right. what we know. Yeah, and it it's a different war. Afghanistan was a different war, certainly than Korea, and certainly different than World War One, World War Two.
0: Brought home in vivid. Yes. Uh, Tactile Mm -hmm. presence of the caskets, Mm -hmm. which otherwise would be buried where they fell. Home to Canada, and I was there on those bridges on four or five occasions, watching the people watch the caskets go by.
1: I was going to ask you about that because Whew, um, last time I was my honorary colonel's conference was at Trenton this year, yeah. just a couple of months back. So from Toronto to Trenton, you're driving the Highway of Heroes, and you see the signs along the way, and I saw the overpasses, and I remembered the video. But you, you went the first time that you went there was well i went there through one of
0: the guys who was at the friendly fire incident right. because jeff peck who mm-hmm. was a platoon commander he had just finished the exercise that the second the next company i can't remember whether it was b or c company was mm-hmm. going through the the training at turnac farm jeff was off to the east or west whatever it was waiting because they were doing their exercise Mm -hmm. they were all going to finish and head back to Kandahar Um, and Jeff was in the middle of clearing the area they didn't know what had happened Mm -hmm. I mean we know now that it was a laser guided 500 pound bomb that the Americans unleashed on the Canadians in training but at the moment they thought they were under attack and Jeff's first instinct was to go to protect the area where the men were and then they went out with phosphorescent rings which would light up the Mm -hmm. ground to find what they found Mm -hmm. and it just about destroyed Jeff, mm-hmm. just about almost destroyed Brian, yeah. knowing what they'd gone through. And they shared it with me. And Jeff admitted to me and allowed me to print that it ruined his life. It ruined his relationships. It ruined his dedication to, to education for a while. It almost drove him out of the military because he couldn't come back to civilized society the same way he left it.
1: We need to do a better job. Yeah. We need to do a better job of, of taking care of these folks when they come home.
0: I couldn't say it better, and yeah. that's the you've stolen my thunder. <laughs> that's the message of my talk on oh, Thursday, Okay, yeah. is to essentially do that. But I will do it with the anecdotes of the people mm-hmm. whose stories emerge from this book and elsewhere. I'm, as I told you off-air, I'm currently working on a book now about the famous Dam Busters raid um, going into the Ruhr Valley in 1943 when the British, it seemed that were on the ropes because they had held Hitler to a stalemate mm-hmm. and they suddenly turned the war around and took the war to Germany on that May 17th night when 19 Lancaster bombers went in at low level to attack those dams. And a quarter of the crewmen, a quarter of the 133 men were Canadians and their stories Amazing. have never been told.
1: Well, I can't wait to <laughs> read it as Ted Barris is working on number 19, number 20, and 21 books. i it's like you're working at a furious pace, and I, and I wonder if in the back of your mind at times you you think that you're running out of time, not personally, but to get the stories. Well, I made a
0: big decision in my life uh, a couple of months ago to stop teaching, which hurt, because <laughs> I loved it. Uh, I'm, I've been at Centennial College 20 years, or almost, and I decided that, yes, um, I'm 68 years old. I'm hoping that I got lots. I mean, yeah. my, my dad lived to 80. Two, mm-hmm. my mom to 85. Um, but I, I, you know, that's not the way I'm looking at it. I, I, I want to write these stories before they slip from our fingers. I still have access, and I hope you're going to help me in a little <laughs> job here. I still have access to the people who witnessed it either first or second hand. And it's those stories that are the richest, as painful as they are, as experienced in breaking the silence in this book. And my where I'm revealing the pain. As painful as some of them are, they're just so dynamic about what Canadians did. Mm -hmm. We take so little credit or get so little credit for D-Day and Dieppe and the Dam Busters and Hong Kong and, you know, uh, the liberation of Holland and Italy. And so many of these things are not the macro story. They're the micro story. Mm -hmm. They're the individuals who served, who, who did their part to make these successes, these victories, happen. and I don't mean it in a bloodthirsty you know lust for violence way I mean these were the, the second World War was obvious who the enemies were mm-hmm. and, and and you know these people put their lives on the shelf to go and change it
1: oftentimes first-hand accounts if you're lucky enough the first-hand accounts talk to the spouses at all the partners very and, much so yeah
0: in in um, in The Great Escape, mm-hmm. um, I had occasion to meet George Sweeney, who was the the duty pilot. He was at the gate inside Stalag lift 3. It looked like he was hanging his laundry on the line and what he was simply doing was telling the next stooge in the intelligence line back to where the tunnel uh, mouth was, who was coming through the gate. Yeah. George lived, unfortunately he's passed, lived with his wife Joan, whom he met in England just before he was shot down and ended up in Stalag lift 3. And because Joan and George lived to be, and George is still with us, but Joan passed, they lived to be she was in her mid-90s. Her story is rich with tales of what life in England was like, Mm -hmm. but also the connection that happened between them, because George vowed when he went to England, he was never going to fall in love. (laughs) Least of all with someone in England when he was in the middle of a war. And what happened? Exactly the opposite. And so the revelation of that was extraordinary in terms of its impact on him and the way he responded and saw Luglov 3 and the way he told the story in years that passed later.
1: If you're interested in military history or if you're just interested in listening to a great storyteller, that storyteller is Ted Barris and he is at Festival Place in Sherwood Park Thursday at 7.30 as part of the uh, Chautauqua 150, the celebration of Canada's 150th. Tickets are $10 to come see Ted that night. Uh, You can get them at strathcona.ca forward slash tent. He'll be speaking about the book that we've been talking about, Breaking the Silence, Veterans Untold Stories from the Great War to Afghanistan. Thank you, Ted. Thank you for joining us once again. It's always a pleasure.
0: The pleasure was mine. You always make it so easy. The 6:30 Chad Afternoon News with Jaylen Nye and Andrew Gross weekdays at two on 6:30 Chad.